Hi, church. Today's scripture is in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ellie, for reading the word for us. One of my favorite scripture readers we've ever had. Um, So yeah, thank you. She actually stepped in last minute. And um, well, hello, everyone. My name's Dave. I'm um, one of the pastors here at Redemption. And um, yeah, it's good to be here together. It's been a while um, for me and uh, just good to be back. You know, we always look, look forward to being together um, yeah, with our church family. And so um, kind of some housekeeping uh, real quick out of the gates. Uh, one thing, because I forgot to mention before, uh, I stutter, so uh, that hasn't changed in a c- couple weeks. And um, so I want to give you a heads up on that. Um, also, because I'm going to fiddle, what, uh, can I, I'm going to put this somewhere. I assume it's the worship team. So just, you know, I'm going to throw it up here on this chair because otherwise I'll be fiddling. It's Velcro and it'll make a noise and I won't even notice it. Um, So also now on a much more um, serious note, I um, want to, we we prayed in the first service as well. And and I want us to pray right now uh, for and with and alongside Pastor Marcus. Um, He just found out on Thursday morning that his um, oldest brother, uh, tragically and suddenly passed away. And um, he lives in Liberia. And uh, so Pastor Marcus is just praying through and um, actually on a phone call now with his whole family and just kind of trying to figure out um, if they're able to go and, and how, how to do that and how to honor his brother and his family and to support um, them as well as he's grieving and walking through just, you know, hardship. And, um, you know, I know that in this season, many of us have experienced a lot of highs and a lot of lows and just a lot of uh, sadness and um, confusion and tragedy. And um, I just want to tell you um, you're in the right place. Uh, this the, the church is a place where we can come honestly, um, humbly. Um, and God is big enough and, and he is sovereign enough. That's like in control enough. And he's good enough that he invites us to come um, as we are. Uh, this is not a place to slap on a smile, to pretend everything's good, to give some kind of a uh, kind of a, a theological platitude that doesn't uh, reflect what's actually going on in, in here. And um, that that and that doesn't mean that God bends or changes to meet us, um, but He is big enough to uh, to 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 bring us along. Uh, the the way. So I'm going to actually ask us to again stand. Um, we're, uh, uh, we stand and sit. And so if you're able, would you stand? Um, because right now, um, I'd even encourage you to, the church has kind of historically done this, to hold our hands like this um, as we pray uh, before God on behalf of our br- brother, uh, Pastor Marcus, but also I don't know what is going on with everyone in this room, but but God does. And so let's go before our Father together. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you invite us before you. And um, you are not a kind of Santa Claus figure that's just, um, that, that doesn't deserve our, our, our fear, our awe. Um, you are no less great and powerful and even terrifying. Um, and yet you make yourself um, a, a approachable. You, you, um, you are so good that, that you, you don't stop being in control. You don't stop being great. Um, but you also make yourself approachable where we can come to you as children. Um, we, we can be honest like the psalmist so many times. We can bring our fears, our sadness, our frustration, our confusion. Um, Lord, on behalf of and alongside Pastor Marcus, our brother, um, we, we pray for him, we pray for his heart, we pray for his family. Lord, even right now in this moment, we pray for his immediate family, um, Annie and Lou and Rosie. Lord, will, they, will their home be a, a, a stronghold, a place of support and comfort and um, consistency? And Lord, will you use him um, as he grieves himself to help lead his family through so many different dynamics? And um, Lord, we, we, we know that you know what he needs and what they need. And so we come before you um, on his behalf. And Lord, we also, I pray now for everyone in this room, Lord, you know uh, every number of hairs on our heads. You know every number of days you've assigned to each of us. Uh, this last year plus, this whole season has um, revealed and exposed our fragility. Um, Lord, many of us um, are, are afraid. Lord, many of us are grieving. Many of us are hurt. Many of us are confused. Um, Perhaps some of us have found comfort in being numb, whether it be substances or other things, just kind of trying to be an ostrich and bury our head in the sand. But Lord, you invite us to um, come with our eyes wide open and, and to see the brokenness around us and, and to bring it before you, our good and powerful God. And so even now in this next time we have together in your word, we pray that you will shape us. Lord, will you heal hearts that are wounded and broken? Will you... Um, Lord, convict uh, those of us who have grown hardened to you and to others. Um, we are in your hands. Lord, do with us as you will. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. Um, and as we get into our time in Nehemiah, where we, we started out last week, uh, kicking off a new series um, for the next couple of months in Nehemiah, and um, so meet me there in chapter two. We're actually covering two chapters, chapter two and chapter three. And um, I want to ask you to, to, or invite you to again con continue considering this question that we've, we've asked is, um, what is God doing? Well, what's he doing on a macro historic lo lo level? What's he been doing for thousands and thousands of years? Wh what's he up to and how does that play into this day to 2021, and 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 then um, more personally, what part do you play in his story, in what what he's doing? Because we read the Bible, we we read Nehemiah, and we think, um, okay, this is just a kind of a, a a book that stands on its own. It has someone's name at the top of it, and then we tend to read the scriptures kind of segregated into small parts, um, like this. But it this book is, like every other book, a part of a bigger story. 
um, the whole Bible from cover to cover is telling one consistent theme, one story. And so as we zoom out, we see that every book of the Bible um, could have the title, something along the lines of um, what God is doing in a particular place at a particular time uh, among a particular group of people and how that fits into the whole part, uh, the whole story that he's overseeing, that he has, has, has authored uh, according to Nehemiah's perspective. But that's a long title, right? So we, we shorten it. We accept Nehemiah. Um, but, but so again, I want to ask us, to, as we zoom out, we look at the big picture. How does this, how does Nehemiah fit into the bigger picture of what God's doing? And then um, uh, uh, over 2,000, about 2,500 years later, how do we fit into what God's doing? And, and so like any other story, if you kind of, it's like if you were starting a movie and it kind of flashed from different scenes, we will look at different characters, different people. We'll look at the powerful, the influential, the antagonist, the complainers, the nobodies, the su supporting cast, and the hero. So with that, just kicking off in verse one, we'll start out, we look at the powerful. Chapter two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So this King Artaxerxes, all right, we, in our time, we tend to just read, we kind of move on. It's some of the names we don't even know how to understand. We just kind of move, move along. Well, um, in this time, the, 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 the Median Persian kingdom, it was one of the most brutal, terrifying kingdoms in the history of the world. So much so that these kings, if you actually read, um, I was actually talking to someone after the first service about this, this, this podcast. It's called things called hardcore history. And, um, and it talks about just different time periods, different events, different things like that. And this, um, it talks about specifically about this king and these families. If you've ever seen the movie 300, um, uh, you know, Sparta, things like that. And they're, they're, uh, that king fits into this family. This King Artaxerxes is from the family line of, of that, that king. And, um, they killed each other, okay? Brothers are killing each other, so they're brutal. They're not just like, we kind of read along here and we see, like when we think of power and influence, um, it's on a level that we can't even fathom, all right? They would say, take over that group of people and make them our slaves and it would happen. They would say, um, bring me this and it would come. They would say, get that away from me and it would go. And, and as I said, even siblings were trying to kill each other. And so this guy has the ultimate amount of power, Artaxerxes. And so he has someone who works for him who's referred to as a cupbearer. And the cupbearer would drink the wine before the king would drink it because if someone wanted to poison the king, which again happened, 
and these kings were dying all over the place. Brothers were killing each other. Man, I'm one of four boys, and uh, we didn't go that far, all right? Like swirlies, wedgies, you know, were bad enough, but we weren't trying to poison each other's Kool-Aid. Um, and so, so, so Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Again, the king is powerful, and we need to acknowledge that because some things we see as we look at these different characters is there some things consistent here with Artaxerxes that's not normal, right? Look at his compassion. Nehemiah goes out of his way to say at the end of verse one, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? So again, this part in much of Nehemiah is written like a journal. It's a first person, first person, firsthand journal that Nehemiah is keeping. And this is his account of what happened. And Nehemiah saw fit to acknowledge, I wasn't sad. I wasn't, you know, moping around, but the king was perceptive enough that he called me out on it, right? And that's when he says, and I was terrified. But the king said, this is something, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Okay, I admit, um, even to the people I love, that phrase doesn't just flow out of my mouth very often, right? I don't know about you, but when someone in your fam family is, you know, being a gr grumpy bear, <laughs> having a bad day, um, how many of us are, 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 are sensitive enough and discerning enough to say, you're not sick, but this is sadness of the heart. <laughs> this is sickness of the heart. And, and I see that. I perceive that. What's the matter? Right? Most of us are like, dude, get over yourself. Like, what's wrong? Like, you're kind of, you're <laughs> raining on my parade. But it's, it's, it's interesting here that Nehemiah goes out of his way to acknowledge that this person who has more power than anyone in the whole land in this moment is discerning, is compassionate doesn't just use his power to trample over everyone else, but actually asks about someone under his authority. Someone that, ha that doesn't deserve his concern or his interest at all, but he gives it to him. Now, I do want to be clear. This isn't like, don't go get a bracelet that's like WWAD, you know, what would Artaxerxes do? This isn't like the model figure to, to base your life after, but... Um, in this moment, we see a picture that Nehemiah saw important enough to acknowledge that someone with this much power is concerned about others. Then we move on, though, to Nehemiah. And so pick up with me in verse 3. He's an influencer. I said <laughs> to the king, let the king live forever. Okay, that's um, a way more consequential version of you're going to tell someone, no offense, but... Right? In this case, he's like, may you live forever, don't cut my head off, um, but I'm going to tell you since you asked. Okay, So Nehemiah is afraid. Again, it helps us understand the power that Artaxerxes has. But Nehemiah has a place of influence and privilege. So he continues and he tells the king, he says, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may re." 
build it. So first out of the gates, if you just read it, again, it's okay to be honest with the scriptures. It seems like Nehemiah is being a little, little bit like passive aggressive, a little bit manipulative, right? And that's why he goes out of his, out of his way to, to say, no, I'm, I wasn't pretending to be sad. I wasn't wearing my heart on my sleeve on purpose so that the king would ask me, right? He knew the king could could kill him any moment. So he's trying to just stand there and do his job. But the king, again, in his discernment, asked Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is patient. He's prayerful. He's slowly putting his head down, serving, doing his job. But in this moment, he acknowledges, I've got a privilege. I've got an influence. And I want to use it. I want to honor God. I want to love my neighbors. But let's just pause here for a moment. I know Pastor Marcus mentioned this last week too, that this word is kind of a buzzword right now in this cultural moment that we find ourselves. Let's just be honest. There's a bunch of those, right? Like you, you, we used to say trump card all the time, right? And that's like, now it's like, oh, can you say that anymore? What does that mean? Am I making a political statement? Am I, it's like, no, it's just the trump card. I don't even, anyone know the origin of trump card? I don't, I don't know this starts there, but it's one of those things like, ooh, can you say that? Well, privilege is another one of those, right? Like, oh, you can't say privilege because all of a sudden um, you're now, you're now uh, advocating a particular political agenda. And I just, man, I just pray that we can uh, take God seriously enough and take ourselves less seriously enough <laughs> to just, um, just be honest and to just uh, um, evaluate and, and to trust the spirit of God to lead us faithfully as his people, that Jesus says that his way is narrow and difficult and those who find it are few. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's making it clear, um, we're not gonna fit into any other kingdom of this world, the left, the right, up, down, any other. Um, he, he has one kingdom and he is over it and, 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 and we um, need his help to, to faithfully uh, follow him and, and walk with him. And in this moment here, we, it's not any agenda, you just, you see, Nehemiah has privilege. Okay, it's very similar in the book of Esther, if you've ever seen that, I think it's Night with the King. There's a mo mo movie about it, um, and it's this this story, this 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 um, woman who's a part of the king's um, harem, and uh, and then she all of a sudden is a place of privilege, of influence, and her own uncle Mordecai calls her out. There's also a veggie tales. This might be ring ringing a bell. Um, Mordecai has a like New York Brooklyn accent <laughs> all of a sudden, but um, and I think he's a lima bean or something or pea but anyway not important right focus on the right part of the story so very similarly um nehemiah is in a similar place to esther of all of a sudden like what do i do with this privilege i want us to acknowledge her moment he could have said yeah i'm still a servant i'm not the one on the throne but i'm pretty close to it like yeah i'm drinking wine that the next sip might kill me but at least i'm drinking wine right? At least I'm drinking the good stuff that the king's drinking. At least I'm wearing royal clothes. At least I'm in uh, air conditioning. They didn't have air conditioning yet, but what, you know, people fanning them with, you know, palm branches. He's right there. He's got a life of comfort. And, and, and how tempting is it for anyone in that place to just look through the lens of our particular situation? But Nehemiah we see God opens his eyes. He pauses and prays in that moment. He says, God, what do I do with this opportunity? 
And he tells the king, he says, will you let me go? How can I not be sad? My ancestors, these ancestors, this is from hundreds of years before. He doesn't know any of these people. How many of you, if I asked you the name of your maternal great-great-grandmother, how many of you could just give it to me off the top of your head? Probably some, you're like, a, but most of us not, right? Like, okay, my great-great-grandma on my mom's side, I have no idea, all right? I, I don't even know any of the background, any of the story there. That's a similar place here for Nehemiah, but he cares. Historically and currently, he cares about others. He's not just looking through a selfish lens that we're so tempted to look through in our own lives today. And then pick up a little more with me as we learn more about Nehemiah down in, um, in verse 12. Then I arose in the night. Okay, so he goes. He gets sent. Um, Artaxerxes allows them to go. He goes to Judea. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So he's making a point here that normally Nehemiah rolled deep, all right? He had an entourage. He had people with him. He had cars in front, cars behind, um, all these things, all these animals. Okay, they didn't have cars yet, but all these different animals and things like that. Here he's going. Well, in this case, he's all alone. Just him, his horse, or donkey. It says, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So this is, he's given that information to say just how severe the destruction of these walls had been. They can't even pass through the gate. It'd been broken down so badly. The animal he's on, they can't even pass through it. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Okay, we get a snapshot here again into Nehemiah's character. This is a bit of a foreshadowing of what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount when he would be calling out religious influencers, religious um, authorities, people with power and privilege who were using it for selfish gain. And he said, listen, don't be like the hypocrites when you're praying. Don't, um, don't be like them and stand at the street corners and, 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 and use lofty words so everyone respects you. No, you go in your prayer closet and pray in silence so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, when you're giving, when you're doing a great work, don't announce it, don't hashtag it, don't, you know, put it out there for all to see. Like, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We see part of Nehemiah's character. He's not only just caring about himself, but he's also so concerned with God and with others that he goes out faithfully, quietly, seeking the welfare of others, not for his own gain, not for his own prestige. Now, I just want to quickly pause for a moment and just say some of us get even religious about not being religious, 
right? We're like, oh, like someone asked us, or, you know, you offer someone food and you, don't, you can't say I'm fasting right now because you don't want to be, you know, religious about it and you're actually being religious. And they're like, oh, well, I'm kind of, you're just awkward, right? It's okay to like be honest. The point is not like don't pray with other people. Like, wait, did I just break the rules by praying here in front of the church? Shoot, like, you know, no. It's like don't get caught up again in the wrong things, but it's a heart, it's a heart of evaluation. What's our motive? And in Nehemiah, we see high character. We see love for God and love for others. But he faces opposition. Okay, let me say this. Um, for, for any of us, um, every good work, anything worth fighting for, will endure opposition and must be able to persevere through opposition. Did you hear me? Every good work, anything worth doing and fighting for will encounter opposition. What does that mean for you? If you're ma married, your marriage matters massively. Y you are the picture that God has given to the world of Jesus's relationship with his church. And it is worth fighting for. Often when I officiate a wedding, I give the couple a charge. Say, even if you're fighting with each other, fight for each other. Fight for your marriage. It matters to God. Covenant matters. Commitment matters. If you are a, a single person, if you are a parent, if you are seeking to have financial integrity, if you are seeking to, have, um, to walk in purity, if you're seeking to, to, to reflect God and how you relate with other people, well, whatever it might be, if you're seeking to be faithful in this really difficult cultural moment, this season we find ourselves in, it's gonna come up against opposition. Nehemiah is, as we saw here in this moment, his character is right and is good and he's doing a good thing. It's actually coming at great cost to himself and yet he gets accused of the very opposite thing he's doing. He faces opposition. There are, there's the powerful, the influencers, and the antagonist, the complainers. All right, look in um, verse, uh, verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing, and uh, are you rebelling against the king? How many of you um, really struggle when someone questions your mo motives? When you're not understood for what you were trying to do, right? You you, someone said, okay, you go first, right? Some, this c couple family had us over for brisket last night, it was amazing. And what if you, you saw like the juiciest, best spot? Sorry if you're vegetarian, vegan. Um, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. But um, right, and you, you see and you're like, that, or the best grilled portobello mushroom. Okay, just, um, and <laughs> right, which is a distant second. Um, and, and so you, you see it and then you're like, oh, I'm not gonna get that piece. And then you go and you get the next best piece. 
And then someone's like, oh, okay, good job. Yeah, take the best piece. And you're like, no, 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 I was doing the opposite. I was leaving the best one. I, I was humble there. I was, and, and that's like silly and trite, but it just happens all the time. And our inner lawyer is just barking, right? Like, no, no, no. Like, you can't think that of me. You can't. And yet Nehemiah faces this kind of opposition. He's doing the right thing, and these guys are accusing him of the very opposite thing. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about others, and he gets accused of just thinking about himself, and he's honoring the king. He's been sent by the king, but he's getting accused of trying to usurp and disobey the king. But let's be honest. We tend to insert ourselves into the story of Nehemiah. Let's maybe evaluate where there might be a little bit of sand ballot in us. All right, where might we be prone? Like Sanballat and these different guys, Sanballat and crew, um, they had a pretty good life going. They were off in this land. It was kind of overlooked by the king. And all of a sudden, these Hebrew people, these Jewish people who stayed, who they could abuse, who they were a couple rungs higher on the social status ladder, all of a sudden Nehemiah and Ezra come back into town and they start, uh, they start seeing this, this, this people, um, God's people start to be restored. They start to have some dignity. This wall starts to be built and it's going to challenge uh, the, the, the status and the comfort of these three people. And we'll see, they, they actually ratchet up their opposition later. But again, let's just pause and acknowledge where is that true in our own hearts? Where are we tempted on whatever facet of life that when someone else starts to climb a little bit too high, we want to push them back down if it starts to challenge our status, our comfort, our wealth, our whatever it might be, our, our, our family status, our, you know, it's there. It's, it's, it's in us. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important for us to uh, not just assume, oh, I'm Nehemiah, but also as we look at these different, different characters, again, as we ask, okay, where am I in God's story? What's God doing? And I, I've, I don't have any individuals in my mind right now. And again, like the spirit is convicting me in this. But how often do we even use God to further perpetuate our own status. I'm, I'm theologically in this place right now, and so I'm going to kind of talk out of the side of my mouth about this theological tradition um, because I see them, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well in this pandemic. Or some folks from our church left and are now going to that church. I'm going to throw some shade on, on that group of people. And, and or, or we've got this thing going here that's been working out pretty well for us right now. I'm going um, to, in the name of God, uh, trip those people up. And in so doing, I might be uh, using God to further my own agenda. And we should be terrified of that. Again, uh, I don't know what this means, but I, I feel um, compelled, called to lead us. Okay, I'm with you to lead us before the Spirit to expose and convict where Sanballat might be alive in how we operate with one another and with the society around us. Okay, let me say this. Okay, hear me right now. Um, anytime you obsessively focus on yourself, it leads to sin. 
the story of Scripture. Let me say that again, okay, so I know I'm not all alone here. Anytime you obsessively focus on self, it leads to sin. And you might, again, that inner attorney might be coming back right now, and that's okay. Okay, don't, don't take it up with me. <laughs> Go for God. I, I challenge you, read through Scripture. Where does sin start? Uh, I don't want to be an image bearer of God. I want to be like God. Uh, I want to have as much power of God. I don't want to take my identity and my purpose from God. Um, I, I want to do it my way. Genesis chapter 3. What happens? Focus on self. Shame creeps in. Brokenness. Rivalries. Deceit. Murder. All throughout Scripture. King David. I mean, I could just go the the Tower of Babel, Noah, whatever it is, comfort, power, approval, all these things. When we start focusing on ourselves, sin, brokenness, evil starts to creep in, takes place, starts to unfold. And in stark contrast to that, we now come to chapter 3. How many of you have um, just opened up your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 3 and said, I really, I want to have a quiet time. You know, I'm gonna, I wake up this morning, I want to read the Bible and connect with God. I'm going to Nehemiah 3. Is that the top of your list? Um, Nehemiah 3 reads like a phone book. Some of you don't even know what a phone book is. And uh, that's okay. I was thinking about this. I kind of had that aha moment in the first service. Um, I know some of us know what a phone book is. Um, I'm not going to go all old man on you and tell you about how coddled and easy your life is, but kind of. Um, in some ways, okay, pain is pain, difficulty is difficulty, but you don't know what it's like to have. So when I was 11, I moved to, from San Diego to Arkansas. That was pain in itself. But then um, uh, I would go back and spend the summers with my dad. And I remember this vividly. I remember where I was standing when I was like, oh, I want to reach out to Jorge and to Eddie um, and to Vanessa, some of my old best friends. Um, and I didn't have a little, little black book or a little, I didn't have a cell phone, didn't exist. Internet didn't exist. Go, Facebook, none of this is going on. So what does my dad do? He pulls out this fat phone book, which is like thousands of pieces of paper with really fine print glued together, okay, a book um, that has every, de- you could put ads in there. It's crazy. He plops it on the on the on the counter. And he's like, oh, wait, no, they might not be in that one. That's this part of the county. Might be in this one. And there's just piles and piles of these phone books, which is just crazy. You can't even picture. But then take it further. You didn't even know if you were going to be calling the right number, um, the right place. Imagine having a stutter and you're trying to call up and you're like, is, you know, um, well, okay, yeah, Jorge, right? I speak some Spanish, but someone might be thinking I'm saying something else. I start to stutter on the phone. I'm like, is, you know, and they're like, what'd you say? You don't cuss me out, hang up on, you know, it's a true story. My own grandpa hung up on me before. <laughs> Thought I was a telemarketer and, you know, like grandpa's do, starts like talking to my grandma while, and I'm like, Grampy, it's David. You know, all of a sudden he's click. And called back. He had a hearing aid. I had a stutter. It was not a good combo. So this part of scripture reads a little bit like a phone book. Let me just give us a little sample of it, though, and re- read it, because it's God's word. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brother. I'm in chapter 3, verse 1. Rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built 
And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And then skip on down to um, verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Yes, the dung gate. Okay, dung means poop, if you don't um, know that. And so there was a gate called the dung gate, and it had a function. And uh, apparently this next group, um, Mal. Kijah, the son of Recheb, drew the short straw, and so he uh, gets to build the dung gate, and he's the ruler of the district of Beth um, um, Hakerem, repaired the dung gate, he rebuilt it, and set its doors, its bolt, and its bars, and the whole part reads on and on, this whole chapter. Let me just ask you for a moment, how do you feel reading that? Are you bored? a little unimportant, little ho-hum, little mundane. Let's get to, you know, young kings killing giants with slingshots. And, um, you know, let's get, to, let's get to the good stuff, right? And that's okay. I am, again, I am with you. But I, I want to tell you, I think what goes on in our hearts when we read a chapter like chapter 3 is probably reflective of how we feel about living the Christian life the vast majority of us will be like the people in this chapter, called to live seemingly mediocre, mundane lives that won't be headline worthy, that won't be the big stars, that won't have the big stage, that won't have the big splash. And we're prone to be frustrated by that, to get tired of it, to get bored with it, to miss the fact that God saw these people and these seemingly mundane acts as eternally significant enough to put in his word. Okay, our names are not even going to get this far, and I'm sure there were other people involved, like the people who, who weren't the rulers of you know, Jericho or half of Jerusalem or whatever, just the people that were handing them the bolts and the screws that went in the doors, right? That, that's a seemingly mundane task. But let's also acknowledge, okay, what were they building here? A wall. How, how, uh, how sufficient is a p- partially built wall? Sam's an architect. He could probably tell us, you know, I'm or probably Benjamin or Maddie could probably tell us too here. Like, it, you need every part of the wall in order for the, ma- ma- the wall to, I don't know if I just said mall or not. Malls aren't important. Um, <laughs> walls are. If you're trying to defend your city, defend the temple, defend the place where God meets with his people, if one of these no-namers supporting casts doesn't do their part, come on, it's the dung gate, it's, we're dealing with poop here, doesn't really matter, then the whole wall is insufficient. There's no protection. There's no defense. It matters. Let me give a couple diagnostic questions to us 
Um, I'll start out maybe a little more light because it's something I feel with. Um, what If you're a parent, how are you with your kids' extracurricular activities? I'm, I'm here to give the... I, I almost bet none of us in this room are going to have a family member who goes pro in, like, anything. All right. Um, <laughs> much less a sport where they're getting paid millions of dollars. Um, maybe. I hope I'm wrong. Maybe I am. Uh, the, the U of A is playing right now to go to the uh, College World Series, like right now. So this is an act, like, unlike Nehemiah, I'm going to let you know what I'm currently doing. Um, I'm sacrificing for you. Um, I really wish I was watching the U of A uh, play Ole Miss right now and beat them. And yes, we're using 110 degree heat to exploit them, but whatever, it's fine. Um, anyway, we are... Uh, but even those players, like the vast majority of those players on this team that could win the college World Series, the national championship, probably won't be name-worthy in any of our homes. And yet we are so obsessed with ourselves that rather than focusing on character, teamwork, kindness, um, you know, what it looks like to persevere through disappointment, and trust me, I coached my sons. Uh, I will have to repent and pay for his, uh, his counseling down the road. I coached him uh, through baseball. And so quickly, my own identity was just piled on him. And I'm sitting there talking to a seven-year-old like he's a millionaire. You know, oh, hands up, get your hands up. What are you thinking? You know, keep your head in the box. Don't, don't jump out of the way about from that ball flying at your head. Sacrifice for the team. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's pathetic. Uh, yes, please forgive me. Cooper's nodding because he's like, yep, that happened. I actually beamed him myself, uh, and that's when I handed over to other coaches. <laughs> I digress. Um, where do we fit into God's story? All throughout Scripture, as I said earlier, we read about King David, Abraham, Noah, Nehemiah, Samson, Hey, if, you're, if you know the Bible a little bit, I wanna, what, what do you think of when you think of Hebrews chapter 11? It's referred to as the hall of faith. Most of them are, were pathetic. They were terrible scoundrels. The hero, there's one hero. Philippians chapter 2 tells us who the hero is and what he does. In this case, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, we get again a little glimpse at it. The king granted me what I asked, for the hand of my God was upon him. All throughout, story after story, David, King David, flees and goes to um, the people of G Gath, and God um, gives him favor there. Okay, he constantly, I can't list all the different stories, everywhere, God is the hero. And then the climax of the whole story we see in Philippians chapter 2 is the one with the most power, the most comfort, the most prestige, the most privilege, the most influence. God himself humbles himself. He doesn't consider all that he has something to be grasped, but he gives it up. He gives it up for you and me. In John chapter 10 verse 10, we're told that Jesus says he I came to give life, life in the full, life abundantly. What does that life looks like? look like? 
It looks like an invitation into walking with Christ who laid his life down for the good of others. He gave you so much life so that now you can lay down your life for others. You can give up your rights. You and I can give up our privileges. We can use our power for God's glory and others' good. He tells us anyone who seeks to keep his life, to grasp it, to keep it as our own little pet that we use and, and, and manipulate every other circumstance for our own good, he says, no, no, that person will lose his life. But the one who gives his life away freely will gain life. He reveals that life is found in Christ and Christ alone. So again, church, I want to I want to close and pray, and um, and invite us as we now zoom back out at the big part of the story. Where are we? What's God doing? What's God doing in this moment? And what part do you and I play as we continue to navigate COVID? As we continue to navigate political and social unrest, as we continue to be challenged at every turn to do something we don't want to do, wh wh how, what's our perspective? Are, are we cast members looking at the hero, displaying the hero through how we live our everyday, seemingly munda mundane, ho-hum lives? What would it look like for us as a church to be so committed to our part in his story that people can't help but to demand an explanation and to turn their eyes to the hero who laid down all that he had for the good of his people. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we, uh, we need you. Um, as I said earlier, I, I, we're all in this place right now of considering um, what you will do with us, with our hearts. Lord, where do you want to comfort us? Where do people feel like their lives don't matter? Like all of life is all for Jesus is just like how does pushing papers, pumping gas, um, whatever it might be, giving people money a, as a bank teller, how does that have anything to do with Jesus's kingdom? Lord, I pray that you will comfort, that you will lead us to faithfully each day uh, love you, glorify you, and love our neighbor. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will also convict us where we need convicting. Lord, we know there's no shame in you, so we are free to confess our sins. We are free to evaluate our hearts. We are free to see where we have um, uh, asked how the church can serve us rather than how we can be a part of a community that reflects your gospel. Um, Lord, I, I pray that you will do a work in us even now as you lead us in response. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.